rejoice in that. Well, we turn again to Micah. Please take your Bible and turn to the table of contents and uh, look there if you would. Find that uh, little, little tiny letter in the back of your New Testament. And then um, let's all land together in Micah. Somebody said, Pastor, these titles are killing me. Um, yeah, notice the title there. In fact, let's read the title uh, together. Are you ready? What is this title? It is Cannibal Kings, False Prophets, and Crooked Judges. You say, well, that's not so very different than the one last week. And we would say, yes, that's true. And these, these chapters are somewhat similar, but we see that the message of Micah is an incredibly powerful message revealing the sinfulness of man and the mercy of God. So we are in Micah, and we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 3 today. For those of you who are new to us this morning, we want to look at a review. And for all of us in this room, we review just a little bit so that we can really see where we've been and where we're going. This helps us have context. In fact, I'd like to ask you to notice here and see if you can, without being prompted by the screen, see if you can fill in those two things that are up there at the top. The prophecy of Micah, it's a three, there's three prophecy cycles, and each one of those prophecy cycles have two key parts of that prophecy cycle. And um, we're going to see this again this morning, but just very quietly, can you fill those in on your own? Can you fill those in on your own? Make yourself, make your mind remember. And maybe when I say the first one, you'll be clued in for the second one. We see in each one of the prophecy cycles, there is judgment. There is God's judgment of sin. But not only do we see God's judgment in the book of Micah, but we also see something else. What do we see? What is it? Very good. Many of you said mercy. We see God's judgment, but we also see His mercy. And it's important for us to see that throughout this letter. In fact, every one of the minor prophets has God's judgment and has God's mercy. And this is the message that we need. Not only 700 years before Christ would be born um, and, and come to save us from our sins, but here in 2020, as well. Notice this, that the setting is that the people of Israel are in rebellion, and they have sinned against God. And we see the first cycle, the second cycle, and the third cycle. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at that second cycle, the first part of it. Um, it's, you notice there that second cycle is doom and deliverance. Well, this morning, we're going to look at the doom. We're going to look at chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. That's the entire one. And it's, it's the doom for leaders and false prophets in Jerusalem. Now, I would like to ask you, if you would, just kind of put a bracket that, that is over there on the left-hand side, first, second, and third cycle. The reason I have these on the outline for you, two reasons. Number one, if you put a bracket out there, and this isn't on the, on the screen, but if you just put out there the context, understanding the outline of this little, this little letter of Micah or the prophecy of Micah will help you understand. If you understand the context of it, it will help you understand the message of it. And so it's my prayer that we at Sheridan Hills that we would embrace the tremendous message of the gospel in Micah and that we would see that God is at work as he reveals to us our sin and he reveals to us 
our need for him. Notice underneath cycle number three where it says notice, the judgment prophecies are intended, and this is a new one, they are intended to lead God's people to repentance. When we read in the Old Testament and we read in the New Testament about the judgment of God, and the Lord Jesus spoke a lot about the judgment of God. When we look at even the book of Revelation and we read about the great coming judgment of the day of Christ, the picture is this, that the judgment is declared for those who have ears to hear, to repent and run to God for his salvation. Now the one who has no ears to hear, has no, no ears to hear his voice, will continue in their folly. But there are some in this room today that maybe even right now, as we start to talk about this and as we see this, and maybe you've been hearing the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man, and you've been realizing that, no, this is a loving God who offers to us salvation. And when we hear about His judgment, He's calling us, He's calling us to recognize our need for Him to turn from our sin and to run to Him in salvation. And you can do that by faith. You can do that by faith in Christ. You can come and recognize your sin. And what we see in the book of Micah, what we see throughout the Psalms, what we see even in the call of of Christ is to repent of our sin and to believe in Him. In fact, if you were to go look at the beginning of the Gospels, those are Jesus' first words as He begins to preach. It says that time was was there for his ministry to begin, and he starts out in Mark, and he says, repent and believe. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so that's what we call you to. That's what we call you to recognize this morning, that God calls us to repent and to believe the gospel. Now, as we come, I'm reminded as we we come to this passage of Scripture um, and we see some key themes here, I'm reminded of um, a key story that many of us have studied in British literature and history, A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. Maybe you had to read that in high school. I remember over at South Broward High School, I had um, Mrs. O'Mara for ninth grade English in literature. And I remember her standing on top of the desk um, in that classroom and quoting perfectly the opening words of A Tale of Two Cities. And I remember going through that story over the next month that she took to take us through that piece of great literature where I started to fall in love with glorious classic stories. You see, in the 1780s, a storm was brewing in in France. There was the great wealth of the French monarchy with Louis XVI and with Marie Antoinette that was out of touch with the people. In fact, Louis XIV, the sun king, had built Versailles. Uh, Some of you have been to Versailles. This is a photograph of Versailles. It's an amazing palace, one of the most glorious palaces in all of the world with gardens all around it. And this is very much like it was in the 1780s. It was a massive palace with fountains and, uh, and opulence that no one had ever seen. And the king and all of his regalia 
not only lived in Paris part of the time, but he would also live there. So Louis XIV becomes king very early, and then his young wife, Marie Antoinette. And these were real pictures. These are, these are real people um, ruling over a French society with great opulence and with great, listen, with great disregard for the welfare of their kingdom. And they even have two children and the, the stories about what all, how the children were cared for and the opulence of Versailles was, is, is truly amazing. Many of you have seen the Hall of Mirrors um, that is there in Versailles. They, this is still there today. So that's the context of A Tale of Two Cities. And we see that Marie Antoinette would, would be told the people have no bread. And it's said by some that she responded with their with their awareness of no bread. She said, well, then let them eat cake. Out of touch. Sucking the life out of the people. And it's within that that Charles Dickens would write, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief. It was the epic of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. We had everything before us. We had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven. We were all going direct the other way. In short, the period was so far like the present period that some of its noisiest authorities insisted on it being received for good or for evil in the superlative degree of comparison only. This beautiful picture of the great disparity between king and people, between the aristocrat and the peasant. And here we come to look in Micah, and we see that this is a common plight of man. This is a common plight here in a fallen world that there is the wealthy and there is the poor. There is the wealthy who gain their wealth from the poor, who oppress the poor, who ignore the poor. And here in this passage, we're going to see in the most graphic of terms, we're going to see what sin does when we ignore the hurts of others and how selfishness and greed can suck the life and in fact consume people that are around us. We see this presently. When we look at the population of the world and we see the massive disparity between those who don't even have clean water to drink and those who live in the great opulence of, of, of endless wealth, we see very similar plight that is here. Notice with me in chapter 3, we are going to see the doom of the ungodly declared, and we're going to see this, by the voice of God. So that this Yes, this is Micah, but we need to recognize that Micah is speaking 
God's words. Micah is speaking the voice of the Lord. In fact, look with me in verse 1. We see that key word, hear. Circle that word, key word. You remember we said that there are three prophecy cycles, and each one of those prophecy cycles start with the word hear or listen. Same word in the Hebrew. Notice what he says. And I said... Hear, you heads of Jacob. You see, these are the leaders. These are the kings. Look what it says. And rulers of the household of Israel. It, is it not you for you to know justice? He's saying, isn't it for you to know justice? Put out there to the side, yes, exclamation point. If anybody should know justice, it should be the king of the people. And then he goes on, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who, notice verse 2, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, you fillet this, their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up and like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Do you see why we have cannibal kings in the title? Friends, the Bible is an R-rated document. The Bible has graphic violence, has unbelievable oppression, the, Bi the Bible goes into extreme detail at various places for us to see very important things about our existence and about God. Here we see with no uncertain terms the tremendous evil of oppression. We see looking, and, and you can just imagine being in Israel and hearing your local prophet to declare these things, and you would be sitting there thinking, wow, our sin is this bad? Our leaders are this bad? That's what this is like. I've heard about what the Assyrians do. I've heard about what the Babylonians do. I have heard about what the Phoenicians do. And these are the godless nations without God that, that they do atrocities that are unimaginable. In fact, those groups we know from history, those people had tortures and those people had things that I could never repeat in this pulpit. But here we see that the people of God, the, the picture of God's people on the earth, his chosen people, have a cannibalistic mentality within them that is sucking the life out of his people, and he is declaring this is evil. Look at the key observations. Verse 1, Micah turns toward Jerusalem. So before he's, he's calling out the sins of the countryside, but now Micah turns his, his gaze toward Jerusalem and he's looking at the capital city where the kings and the rulers are and he condemns them as cannibal kings. Now, we would, we would say that this is a, an illustration. We would say that he's not actually accusing them of cannibalism most likely, and you say, why would you say that? Look at the end of verse 1. He says, is it not for you to know, and what does it say? Justice. 
And we, we know about the, the tremendous problem that the nation of Israel has with injustice. And so he's really looking at this at a, in a, as a metaphoric call out of their sin. And notice this, the imagery, fill this in, the imagery of cannibalism is graphically used to reveal, fill this in, the grotesque sinfulness of the abuse of power to exploit the poor. So if you're wondering how important it is to God that we have a mentality of not exploiting others and not, not coming and mistreating and abusing others, we see that, that God takes it very seriously and the people of God, the leaders of God's people, are to honor and recognize their position like God cares for them, that they too are to care for them. But that's not what's happening. You see, this is, fill it in, this is about justice. This is about what is right in the balances. And so this is about that which is honorable, and this is about that which is not just fair, but it, but it has more to do with right versus wrong, because God is a God of truth. And so that, that, that whole picture, it, it, it looks like a, a horror film or a crime story. Notice as well here in verse 2. I want you to see verse 2. He says, you hate the good and love the evil. And then that's where he really goes into, you tear the skin off my people and their flesh off their bones. But, but underline that in verse 2. You hate the good and love the evil. See, this is revealing, fill it in, this is, notice the wicked position of their hearts. These are people who are not like God. They're not godly. We turn the, we, we use the phrase, oh, is this a godly man? Is this a godly woman? Is this a godly person? Is this a godly group? You know, you, you, what does that mean? That means like God. And what we see here is that these are not godly. These are ungodly. These are wicked and evil. In fact, notice there the gray box at the bottom, and we see that Jesus is mimicking Micah's words, or Micah was mimicking what would be Jesus' words as the creator of the universe, as he's declaring the truth of God. Look what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19. Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break into steel. Look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your, circle it, your heart is also. And then look at the next part. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Here's the language that we see from Micah. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Read it out loud, the end. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and wealth, God and riches. You're either serving God or you're living for the things of this world. And what we see is that Micah is calling out the wicked and evil kings who are living for the things of this world. And they're doing so, so passionately that they're willing to starve and consume and hurt the whole nation for their opulence. And that's why we, we say he... In verse 2, he says, you hate the good 
and you love the evil. So there are three different groups that Micah goes after when we're looking here in, in Micah chapter 3. The kings are first, and then in just a moment we're going to look at the, the false prophets, and then we'll look at judges and priests. But, but notice here what is going to happen. You remember that there's the offense, and then what is going to happen as a result of this. In verse 4, we see God's judgment against them. Then they will cry to the Lord. That's these wicked kings. They will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. Let me tell you that one of the greatest curses that can come the direction of any person is silence from heaven. That when there is the call for help, that there's silence. And there's, there's very often in this present day and time that there's been people that, and, and we've all experienced where we're in trouble, we need help, and we feel like there's silence. That, that's a, that may be different for a person that's Christian, learning to trust the Lord, learning to hear the voice of God, and God may be stretching us and moving us and working with us under the covenant of God's grace in the new covenant. But here we see in this broken covenant of obedience, they have not obeyed the Lord. They have broken the covenant of Moses over and over again for 500 years. And now we see that they are in the long haul stretch of great sin harming the nation. And God is saying, I am not going to hear you. I am not going to answer you. You see, fill it in underneath number four on the notes disaster will hit, disaster's going to come, that's part of his message, and God will not answer. Now let's, let's go on and let's see what else, what other group is here, because it all plays together as we, as we see Micah's prophecy here. On the back side of your page, page verses 5 through 8, we're going to see it again, key observations. Again, notice the false prophets are condemned. Let's look and see the prophets. Look at verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the, underline it right there or circle it, the prophets. And what do the prophets do? Who lead my people astray. Who cry peace when they have something to eat. We're going to say what that means. We're going to see what that means. But declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Verse 6, therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. Verse 7, the seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is what? No answer from God. Put a big circle around verse 8. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, with, the, with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sins. So in verses 5 through 8, we see the false prophets that are misleading the people, and we see the true prophets that is saying the truth. Let's look at this on verse 5. Again, you've already filled it in. The false prophets are condemned. 
And notice this, these are wicked kings who work with wicked prophets. These are wicked prophets doing the bidding of the wicked kings. So they're in cahoots together. They're working together. They tell the people what they want to hear. They tell the king what he wants to hear. Won't speak truth to the king. Won't speak truth to the people. Very curious phrase in verse 5. Look what it says that they, they say. It says, who cry peace when they have something to eat. Now, this is part of that Hebrew poetry thing that is really, really interesting. In the English, it's very, very hard to see and kind of unimaginable. But notice this. Here's the idea. Just like the kings eat the flesh of the people in their cannibalistic mentality, here we see that the prophets bite them like a poisonous snake. So out of the mouth of the prophets, listen to this, like out of a snake's mouth come poison. Now, why would we say that? Here's the reason we say that. The phrase that is translated to have something to eat means literally to bite in the Hebrew. And listen to this. The word is used, the Hebrew word is used 10 times in the Old Testament. Nine of those 10 times it is talking about a poisonous snake bite. See why the Bible's so cool. If you study, Hebrew's worth studying. Greek is worth studying. It, it's worth looking at and looking at the deeper meaning. And when you read the Bible, I want you to always think, man, that's there for something. Even if you don't understand that, I want you to understand, as you're reading the Bible, man, that means something. And one of, the, one of the greatest things about the Christian life is you have the privilege of studying the words of God and learning what it means. And you can do that. You can go, you can go start looking and researching and reading and learning about what is here. Be careful about doing that on the internet, by the way. The internet, seriously, it's full life. There's, there's great resources. There's great commentary. There's great tools for language study and all of those things in the bookstore typically you want to do that. I mean, there are some sites that are very good, but just understand that there's a lot of misinformation on the web. There's, there's people with angles that are not good academic study, study and, and, and scholarship. But here we see that these prophets bite with poison. They attack, listen to this, they attack the starving. That's what they're doing. These people that are being starved to death by the wicked kings are getting bit by the prophets with poison. Micah Micah is very, very clearly painting a picture of the wickedness. And so what does God do about this? Look at verse 6 and 7. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision. These prophets, usually they, they have an extra discernible ability and vision and insight and discernment and, and sometimes a, a, a knowledge from God about what is coming for the, for the sake of the people. That's all going to be shut off. And the day shall be black over them. Verse 7. And the seers shall be disgraced. That means that they're not going to see what's happening. And, and in fact, they're going to be shown to be, to be frauds. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. So verse 6 and 7 is God shuts up the false prophets. He removes their perceptive ability. He reveals their fraudulent ways. And no word from God. There's silence. 
But oh, the glory of verse 8. In fact, take your Bible and look back over in Micah chapter 1 and verse 1. Micah's prophecy begins with a very clear statement of whose message this is. Look what it says in Micah chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah. You see, this is God's word. When we read Micah, this is the word that came from God to Micah that he was to declare to the people. And so these, this isn't Micah making anything up as a prophet. This is Micah declaring the word. And then look at verse 8. We see that underlined. We see that, that really um, made very clear in this. He says, but as for me, I am filled with power. So the other guys are shut off. The other guys are silenced. The other guys have no power. And he says, but as for me, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might. You see, they, they have no justice. And Micah's message has justice to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So fill this in, but the prophet Micah is true. And we see in verse 1-1, this is the word of the Lord that came to him. And Micah's message has God's power because it comes from God's spirit. It's not, it's not coming from a spirit of divination. It's not coming from a spirit of a, of a, of a powerful personality. In fact, we, we see in the scripture that God very often would use people who weren't really, really powerful personalities, so it would be shown that this was actually the power of God on them. The Apostle Paul would claim that. The Apostle Paul would say, I, you know, I have all of these issues, I have problems, there, there's things that uh, struggle that I struggle with, including a thorn in the flesh. I mean, think about the, the prophet Moses, the leader Moses. He, he had a stutter, he couldn't speak very well, and God is going to use him to move the nation of Israel out of Egypt and deliver them from the Egyptians. God very often does that, and so we see that Micah, his power is not within himself, but it's from the Spirit of the Lord. You see, sin must be exposed before repentance can come. And that's what we see here. Look what he says there. To declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. And so that's what, that's what Micah's doing. And friends, I just want to say to you that a lot of times as a Christian, that's what God is doing with it. His Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. His Spirit that lives within us as Christians. There's sometimes when the Spirit, he blows the whistle. And suddenly you, you don't have peace about something. Suddenly you're kind of miserable about something. Sometimes you, you have a foreboding sense that what you're doing is wrong. And that is, the, that is the gracious conviction of God calling you out of sin and back into the safe, narrow way of being with him. Back into the grace of God. Back into the mercy that empowers you to live the way he's called you to live. Instead of being out doing your own thing, dishonoring him. Whether it's an attitude or whether it's an action. Whether it's a, a part of your morality. Sometimes it's 
what you're going to do with your time. Sometimes it's what you're going to do with your family. Sometimes it's what you're going to do with the resources that God has given you. Sometimes it has to do with the habits of your daily life, how you spend your days, how you go to work, how you conduct yourself at work how you conduct yourself with your family, how you conduct yourself with the people that are around you, maybe even at church, that God is calling us out of sin and into the light of his presence as he reveals to us our sin. And here we see Micah, God's man, declaring to God's people their sin, and that is so that they can repent. Now, One of my great favorite persons of history is the reformer John Knox. I want to take just a moment to tell you about what happened with John Knox. John Knox was a preacher in Scotland. He was one of the reformers. So he went went against the loss of the gospel in the great Roman Catholic church that had much influence across Europe. And John Knox was one of the preachers that said, no, the Bible says this, and we have to hold on to what the Scripture says. And it doesn't matter what men say, doesn't matter what individuals say, or even a council, or even a church says, what matters is what God says. And so John Knox was one of those preachers that wrote and held on to biblical theology. So John Knox, in the 1500s, stood up against Mary, Queen of Scots. She returned to England And she returned with corruption, and she returned with false doctrines, and she comes in ruling over Scotland, and John Knox, with some other pastors, stand up to her. And here was a preacher before a very powerful queen, and there were powerful factions that opposed John Knox and his standing against the queen. He would preach a sermon, and he would be called to the castle. He would preach a sermon, or he would write something, and suddenly he would get another summons to come see the king or the queen. And each time he did it, he wasn't sure that he would go home. Each time he did it, he wasn't sure that he would live. He was called in time and time again when he said the queen is about to marry someone, and this is not uh, Uh, In keeping with biblical value, this is not at all correct, and he stands and speaks out against that. The queen was furious. But over and over, he braved the storm so boldly about her false beliefs and her wrong life and her corruption that Mary, at the end, toward the end of her life, she confessed that she was more afraid of John Knox than all the armies of England. Friends, the prophet of God is called to stand with God regardless of where the kings and the queens sit. And the person of God, the child of God, is called to stay with God regardless of where the culture goes. It doesn't matter what the powers to be say. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing. What matters is what God says is right and wrong. Look with me, verses 9 through 11. We see the crooked judges and priests 
This is the crooked judges. So it goes from the, the, the cannibalistic kings to the false prophets. And now we see the crooked judges and priests. These are, these are the religious leaders that are among the people. The prophets weren't with the people day in and day out. The prophets would show up with a message. And they would come out of the wilderness and they would declare it. And, and God would use them to speak in very unique ways to the nation. But it was the priests. And it was the judges that were there dealing with the people on a daily basis. And look what was going on with them. Look at verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight. So these are the people who are supposed to know justice, hold on to justice, and they, they, they constantly turn it. They even go so far as to turn what is right and make it wrong. Look at verse 10. Who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. So he's saying, you're you're murderous. You transgress against God. Look at verse 11. Its heads give up judgment for a bribe. So there we go. These These are judges that are taking bribes. And these are priests. Look what it says there. What does it say in verse 11? It's priests do what? Teach for a price. And so the idea is you can pay them to say what you want them to say. You can lead the people where you want them to go if you just pay them off. So the first one's a bribe. The other one's teaching for a price. And then look at this. The prophets that we've just spoken about, the prophets practice divination for what? For money, do you see how it just keeps coming back to riches? It just keeps coming back to the things of this world, to the luxuries of this life. And then look at verse 11 at the end. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come to us. So let's unpack this in verses 9 through 11. The crooked judges and priests, instead of loving justice, they hate it. That's what it says. The holy city is built on murder and money, not on righteousness in God, not on his spirit. Look at verse 11. The judges and the priests and the prophets, they're all corrupt, and they have a false sense of security. They think everything's fine when it's not. You remember last week we said judgment can be on the way whether you see it coming or not. And that's what, the, that's what the prophet Micah is doing. He's declaring to them that they're wrong and judgment is coming. And then we see at the end of verse 11, look what it says. Yet they lean on the Lord and say. Here's what they do. They actually use God in their shtick. Nice Yiddish word. They use God in their shtick. They, they use God in their little act. That's what they're doing. And let me tell you that God doesn't take kindly when we use God to justify our wicked evil. And this is why very often the judgment upon those who are apostate and the judgment upon those who know the right and do not do it is greater than those who seem to be afar off. Forever I had in my mind that the most judged by God were the people that were the most, that seemed the furthest from him. But what I've learned as I study the Bible and as I live my life, 
that very often the most judged of God are those who supposedly know him and deny him. And they deny him either with their words or they deny him with their life. Somebody would often say, well, the most miserable people on the, on the earth are the people who do not know the Lord. And I would say, well, I don't know about that. Some of the most miserable people on the, Lord, on the earth that I know of are the people who know the Lord and refuse to walk with him. And, and I know, the, how do I know that? Because sometimes I am that. There are times when I know that my heart is, in, is engulfed in misery because I've not submitted to God. I've not just humbled myself before my wife or before my family or before my, my friends and the people that are around me and just been who God wants me to be. And that is a miserable place to be. Let me tell you that there is freedom in repentance There is restoration in repentance. There is a life, there is a lifeblood that comes from being right before God. And yet there is such a great judgment from denying him. You see in verse 12, what is the upshot of all of this? As we come to the middle of this prophecy, we, we, in, in verse for those of you who are new to us today, I know that this is a lot for you and to take in. And you have to come back over the next few weeks as we, as we look at the mercy that is going to come. But look with me in verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion, this is the city of God, Zion shall be what? Plowed as a field. That means turned over. What do you do when you, do, when you, when you break up the ground on a field? You've seen it before. Some of you have. That, that plow comes along and it knocks the earth over. Turns the earth. Flips it upside down. And he's saying that Zion's going to be plowed like a field. It's going to be turned over. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And then look at this phrase at the, at the end. And the mountain of the house, a wooded height. Now, my friends, that is an extremely sad statement. You say, what in the world is that about? Just right down under that, underneath the, the phrase, mountain of the house, the temple in Jerusalem. What is God going to do? He's going to level Jerusalem, including the temple. Why? Because they're wicked. There's going to be no presence of God there. In fact, notice this and fill it in. Jerusalem is to be utterly destroyed. God is going to level the city. It will be turned over like plowed ground. And notice this, the house, it doesn't say the house of the Lord. It just says the house. Why? Because the presence of God is gone. He's not there. Oh, friend, don't let the temple of your heart resist the Lord. Don't let the temple of your heart resist the Lord and deny him by your words, your belief, your attitude, your actions, and then reject him. Friend, 
the child of God turns to God. And the presence of God comes and fills him. But one who is not a child of God rejects God and forces him out and says no. And the child of God, excuse me, and the person who rejects God proves themselves not to be the Lord's. But we see here, and you can go to Jeremiah 26, 16 through 19, and you can see that God relents of this destruction. And the reason that he relents of this destruction is because of King Hezekiah's repentance. So here's the glorious thing. It's not in the book of Micah, but it is in the book of Jeremiah that tells us the fuller story. And the fuller story is, is that King Hezekiah hears Micah's call to repentance. He hears the sins, he hears the sins of the nation and of of the kingdom, and Hezekiah repents and runs to God. And what does God do? He stays his hand from destroying Jerusalem. You see, repentance brings God's restoration and rescue. This is the beauty of the mercy strand that is throughout this. Church family, a few key applications before we go. Number one, from Hollywood, I'm talking about Hollywood, Florida, Hollywood, California. From Hollywood to Halloween, our modern society seeks to entertain you and to entice you with violence horror and intrigue or you put above that death that that's right now when you go into home depot you go into Publix, you go into walmart you go into go into stores everywhere and you see this preoccupation with death you see this preoccupation with blood and horror and skeleton this all of this imagery of fear and wickedness and this isn't just a rant against halloween i i hope that we that we see the grander picture of the wickedness of a fallen world that finds entertainment and seems to be enamored with horror. It's not just on Halloween. My friends, if you you flip through any, remember when you used to go to Blockbuster? For those of you over here that are young, there used to be a store called Blockbuster. And there was even these red things somewhere where you you could go, I think those are gone, red box. But that if you go look through that and you see aisle after aisle after aisle of horror, Satan loves to proclaim and intrigue and, and desensitize to the ideas of great wicked, of cannibalism, of, of great horror and injury, fear. So from Hollywood to Halloween, our modern society seeks to entertain you and entice you with violence, horror, and intrigue, whereas God intends to inform you and warn you of of the deadly nature of your sin and its horrific consequences if you are not snatched to safety from the jaws of sin, Satan, and death. Now, all that's a mouthful. I know that's a long sentence, but I I, I want you to see the picture here, that the world thinks death is something to be played with, 
The world thinks it's, it's not that bad. And God is saying throughout his word, oh no, you, you don't want to go there. And so in his love and his mercy, he's warning us, like Micah is standing up and saying, Jacob, you've transgressed. Israel, you have sinned. God in his mercy is saying, turn. And maybe even some of you, you're here for the first time. You never heard that, that, man, you really are a sinner. You've offended God. And the message of God is, he says, run to me. Confess your sin. Turn away. Turn to me. And you can be forgiven. You can be rescued. You can be snatched out of the jaws of sin and Satan and death. This is salvation in Christ. Number two, I want you to notice in this, in all of this talk about from last Sunday to today, it's important for us to recognize. Number two, New Testament or modern church leaders from from the beginning of the church age to to even to today, last 2,000 years, leaders can be just as treacherous by distorting God's word and or being wickedly motivated by money, sex, power, and status. We see that throughout the Old Testament, and we see that throughout the New Testament, and we see that throughout church history, and we see that on our, on our televisions, and for many of you in your own life, you've seen it. That the supposed man of God who is to stand and be faithful to tell the truth and to live the truth doesn't do it. And he does it for reasons of money, sex, power, status. My friends, the shenanigans that go on in this modern culture in the name of Jesus is unbelievable. Over and over and over again, we hear of religious leaders abusing their position for these four things. Oh, how God will judge that. And some of our lives have been, I've met with somebody this week whose life was deeply, deeply injured by that very thing. Church family, we must hold on to the gospel and we must be together as, as congregants together in the name of Christ. I need the church. You need the church. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I don't need the love and accountability and parameters and correction that you sometimes need. We all need this. This is what church life is about, that we want to be faithful all the way to the end. Ever how bad it gets, we want to be true to him. That is the picture of what the church does. Look at number three. In chapter three, we see that Israel's prophets, priests, and kings have all what? They've all failed. Micah stands, and, and, and there, there are a few, I say all, but we, but we see all three of those groups have failed because that's what you see in the nation. However, Jesus the Messiah will be the perfect and faithful prophet priest, 
and king. We've seen the prophet, priests, and kings have failed, but Jesus, the Bible tells us, is the perfect prophet, prophet, priest, and king. And put out there to the side Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 also shows us this. That the Messiah who would come would be the perfect intermediary. The Messiah who would come would be the perfect king. The Messiah who would come would be the perfect proclaimer of the way of God, the prophet. You see, this perfect Messiah will warn you. He will warn you. That's what a prophet does. Jesus warns us. This perfect prophet will intercede for you. That's what a priest does. He intercedes for you. And he will lead you. And that is what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords does. He goes on victoriously before us. He breaks through, as we saw last week. And you look at the end of chapter 2. He breaks through and his people follow him. And he leads them out of bondage. This is the great plan of God. You can pack up. And as soon as you pack up, I want you to look at the screen. In keeping with that last one, we see the life of John Calvin, and we see a statement that he would make, and it's a glorious statement. Would you please stand with me, and then I'm going to read this. We've looked at two reformers today, John Knox and John Calvin, very appropriate. Notice this. In commenting on this passage, he says, We may patiently pass through this life with misery, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles, content with this one thing. So we're going to go through all this trouble, but we're going to be content because of this one thing, that our king will never leave us destitute, but will provide for our needs until, until our warfare ended, we are called to triumph. This is where it winds up. With God giving his victory to us over sin and death. And finally, when I'm home, when Dylan's home, when Jason's home, when Jim's home, when, when Samantha is home, when, when Rosa is home, when Faye is home, when we're finally home with the Lord, we'll know what victory is all about. And we will cry, glory to the Lamb that was slain. For he has received power and glory and dominion forever. And he gives that to his people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word shows us where we're wrong Lord, we live in a world of oppression, and sometimes we're part of the problem. Lord, we need to repent and run to the Savior. Lord, I pray that we would not be afraid to look deeply at your judgments, and that, Lord, that we would appreciate and run to your mercy. Oh, God, that we would lay aside the things that dishonor you because over and over again we see that you are merciful Lord we thank you that your word tells us it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance 
Lord, I pray that we would see the kindness of the cross. That brutal cross that declares the kindness, the gentleness, the mercy of a loving God. Lord, I pray that today that you would give some, Lord, the faith to believe that they would finally say, I want this. I want to live for this. Lord, I pray that you would encourage others who've lost their way. Lord, they've strayed from the path. I pray that today that they would say, this is a God of mercy. Why would I run from a God of mercy? Lord, I pray that they would run to you and find, Lord, repentance to be the greatest gift they could ever have from you. So, Lord, we we just come before you. We pray that you would help us to live as you've called us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?